I'm blessed and cursed with both right and left brain strengths, and rarely do they both go into gear at the same time, especially when I was running the business and creating films. One would fall while the other one rose, and then it would be vice versa. So it was this constant kind of like jumping in the waves. to Arts In, also known as AI, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here with Victoria Jorgensen, who is a filmmaker extraordinaire. Oh, thank you. So I was looking at your resume. You've been in probably 20 or 30 film festivals. You've won telly awards. You've produced your own work. You've produced documentaries. You've produced work for commercials and companies that need videos. Right. And what I noticed is that you got your BA in 1977 and started studying film in the 70s, late 70s? Yes, definitely. The technology was very different than it is now. Very expensive to make movies back then. There were not very many women in that field. Not too many in this area, anyway. We had a film festival back then, which nobody really went to film festivals back then very much, at least around here, but called Chinsigat. That morphed into the Ebor Festival of the Moving Image at one point and shifted around from Brooksville, believe it or not, to the Tides Hotel in St. Pete Beach and then finally to Ybor. And that was an incredible experience because the fact that we were working in film, it wasn't like you could just bring a disc or or show somebody something on your computer. You had to bring the actual film reel with you. So we had people coming from New York, California, Canada, working with each other for a week-long period on installations and various things and sharing till three, four, five, six in the morning, what you were working on. And it was uh, an incubator, I guess, for lots of strange people making movies. So how did you get interested in being a filmmaker and making movies? And then how did you find your way in that industry? It's interesting. I didn't decide on my major until, I guess, my junior year. And when I decided, I had already fulfilled all the requirements, so my senior year was nothing but electives. And I said, well, let me punish myself and go to the fine arts department and take a beginning art class because I couldn't draw or most of the things that you do paint in art classes. So Margie Miller, who at the time was a professor and is now the head of the Contemporary Art Museum, was my Visual Concepts 101 teacher. And in the first week of the class, she showed Unchen Andalou and... I had never seen anything like this before. I was just mesmerized. And I said, I, I want to learn about this. I want to do this. And she said, well, go down and talk to the head of the department. And I said, okay. So I marched down in my little red Prussian wool jacket and my fry boots with my jeans stuffed in and went to the department head and said, I want to do this. And he said, well, that's nice, honey, but you can't because it's a graduate level and you know, you're an art 101. And I said, okay, I'm going to sit here until you let me do it. And I did, and he did. So what does do it mean? Well, I started taking classes and befriended a mentor whom, to this day, were best friends. He had studied in the Navy, and he knew everything from how to process film to everything about film. And he took me under his wing, brought me up to speed with that, and also electronic music. We were in the fine arts department, which was much more experimental and independent versus the mass communications department, which was crew-based and journalist-based and things like that. So at that time, USF was so new, they just handed us equipment and said, go shoot something, basically. It It was more philosophical than it was technical, so you had to 
figure the technical out by yourself. We shot on Bolexes and cameras like that. It was a, a definite learning experience. I think University of South Florida at that time was so raw and so interesting and there were so many people passing through, whether it be in our department or the graphics department. I mean, it was just a, a lot of amazing energy. So do you remember the first film you made? Yes, I do. It was called Crypticos. It was very interesting because I really didn't know what I was doing. I had a lot of help. And it was, I believe it was only about three minutes long, but I, I just started making films one after the other after that. And you're right, it was very costly. It was an average of about $1,000 a finished minute, which when you're a student is quite a bit of money. Right. Uh, one of the department heads would take us to um, kind of an army surplus area at one of the prisons in northern Florida. We would buy film that was surplus film. So I remember frequently, you never knew what you were going to get because if it was negative film, it may have been older or been in the heat or whatever. So you'd get these effects that you weren't planning on. <laughs> so, but we, you know, we would go through, we had each had a little probably three or four foot wide booth uh -huh. that was ours for the duration. And then, of course, the equipment was in something called the cage. So you had to switch off and share everything and stay up all night and get terrible coffee out of the machine or use instant coffee with the hot water from the bathroom. It was just a wild time. And editing. I think people who were brought up on digital editing, mm -hmm. you would cut film, literally, with a, either a, a machine, a mm -hmm. guillotine machine, or mm -hmm. a revis, or sometimes a razor blade and tape yes. it together. Yeah, there were two methods. One, on your work print, you would usually use the guillotine and, and the tape. And then on your final, when you conformed, which, you know, you had to practically be naked with white gloves on and your hair and a net so you wouldn't get the film dirty. But then you would actually scrape the emulsion off and use acetone to seal the plastic parts together. And it was, it was a totally different experience, especially viewing it through a small viewer and looking at the actual film go across it. It did something really strange with your depth of field, looking at the actual film and then looking at the image, and it was great. The soundtrack was a separate track. For me, it still is that. Um, ah. Back then, we used Nagras, which were crystal synced with your camera. And, and Nagra is a tape recorder. Yes, uh huh. You know, your film actually had an optical or a magnetic track on it. So once it was made, that was it. You know, uh, there was no going back. But um, one of the things I think I, I really value most from that period was my shooting ratio. People today, you know, basically video is free. <laughs> So people will shoot, you know, 20, 30 to 1, and I still try to keep a 3 or 4 to 1 ratio for my shots because, uh, first of all, it's a little bit easier on the editing end. And second of all, it makes you think. You know, when you have a, a small camera with 100 feet of film, you learn to be conservative with what you're shooting and think about it a lot more before you actually get in there and shoot. So you graduated USF, mm -hmm. and what did you do? I stayed one more year, still working on films, and then I was offered a job in the industry, which wasn't in the narrative film industry. It was more like a safety and training thing. So started making pretty good money, bought all my own equipment, and then by the end of the day, I was too tired to do anything when I got home. So there was probably 
close to a 20-year period that I did not make films. I worked for that company for about five years, and then I moved to New York and worked in the corporate world for a while. So uh, I think it was around 1999 or 2000, an old boyfriend of mine threw uh, Francis Ford Coppola's tabloid paper at me, and on the back it had an ad for a screenwriting conference in Belize. And he said, you should go to this. And I said, they're only accepting 20 people, and I was working on a screenplay, but I really, at that time, didn't know what I was doing either. But I sent my screenplay, and I was selected. I was the only wow. one from Florida. Most everybody else was from New York or L.A. It was an amazing week that was really intensive uh, classes during the day and getting to know these people that were kind of in the same boat as me and being in this unique place, which actually was where my mother was born, and I had never been there. So, um, yeah, I learned a lot, and I, I made my first film again. It was like starting all over, because now it was on video. I wrote a, a small short, uh, a short short, <laughs> I think it was three or four minutes, uh, with a friend, and just decided to film it, did so, and that little movie went all the way around the world. It was translated into French. It was shown, you know, in Brazil. It was shown everywhere. Well, what was the name of that? It was Red Flag Women. It was very sophomoric, but... What uh, was it about? five or six different types of women. I think there was the food and wine woman. There was the what do you want to do woman. There was several different types of women that shoot up red flags when you first meet them that you tend to ignore because oh. you want to know more about them. It was it was a narrative. Mm -hmm. It was Yeah, it was it was kind of a mockumentary, a mockumentary a little bit, yeah. So it was fun and it, I was very surprised to see the audience, the best audience for it was like 19, 20 year old guys. And I was like, what? Huh? That was weird to me, but they loved it. When I was in New York, I decided to move back to Florida. My father had a, a business that was uh, more in tune with printing, mm -hmm. but marketing printing. I decided to move back and work with him a little bit. And three months after I started working with him, he caught the flu and the virus went into his heart and he died suddenly. So oh, no. I had the entire company in my lap uh, with my mother's help, who was more on the admin end. So uh, struggled f through a few years with her and then she passed. And then I changed the whole direction of the company, brought in video and social media and all the, the newer things and moved it more towards production as opposed to what it had been. And when was that? What was the time frame? I moved back in 86. I tried to approach, this was before the whole storytelling idea came about in the mm -hmm. commercial world, so I came at it from that point of view and trying to add the layers that normally would be associated with more art films to, to make them more palatable. I did get a contract, with, this is kind of funny, but with the Republican National Convention. <laughs> so there were two production companies hired. Mine was hired to do the creative work. So that was... A huge bump for the company and it also opened many many doors for me and still sometimes opens doors because I got a lot of press and changed things quite a bit and it was a little bit humorous because I was so far from the person they normally would have hired to cover a Republican. What made them hire you do you think? Well they uh, the NFL in their defense uh, wanted to hire local companies and being a woman-owned company helped uh -huh. so uh, it was a foot in the door 
And um, we did, I think, four or five pieces. My favorite ones, which won the telly, was Welcome to Tampa. So we took every wonderful aspect about the Tampa Bay area, from the beaches to bush gardens to whatever, and folded that into uh, a poem that my partner at the time and I wrote. Oh, wow. That James Tokley narrated. That's the one that won. And, and so that was for the Republican yeah. convention? Okay. Yeah. It was the first night everybody came into town, and this was the first thing they saw. I love to write, and uh, it's something uh, that you can do with a pencil and a piece of paper. Uh, I wrote something for the Tide production at Dali. I wrote it on my cell phone while on a beach vacation, and it was amazing. Now, what, I'm sorry, the Tide production? Yeah, can, can with you... Alice Frulo Stampful. She's a performance artist. Mm -hmm. She did a production at the Dali, and then another one at 620, and she was actually inside an aquarium mm. during the production, very avant-garde. And she asked me to write the narration for this piece, which was, I like to do things outside the box uh -huh. you know, that scare me, and that scared me. All right. So Helen Hansen French was in that as well. It was wonderful. It was a situation which I hadn't really written for someone else's production, and it really came through me. It, it happened in a two or three day period that I got this piece that required very little editing, and I, I'm astounded by it myself when I hear it performed. Oh, nice. So. Writing for film is so different than other types of writing because you're moving down a timeline mm -hmm. and it has to be pretty much visual. I mean, you also have the dialogue, but it's much more visual than it is dialogue, in my opinion, at mm -hmm. least the way I write. Just the way characters come to light. Again, sometimes I feel as though I'm not in control. I start working on these characters, I develop them, they start going by themselves, and I'm just writing them down. And pretty soon they're like doing things without my permission. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful feeling. And so. so then on the set, you take the role of the often the producer and director, yes. and they're, they're very different functions. Mm -hmm. um, they seem to me almost contradictory with each other, would you say? <laughs> I would definitely say I'm blessed and cursed with both right and left brain strengths. And so rarely do they both go into gear at the same time, especially when I was running the business and creating films. One would fall while the other one rose, and then it would be vice versa. So it was this constant kind of like jumping in the waves. You know? So what do they do that's different? Like You definitely, in producing, it's much like running a business. It is a business. You know, you have to make sure certain things happen at certain times that are within budget. And on the creative side, you have to make sure that it's happening in a way that, hey, I'm going to be proud of in the end, and that tells a story that takes people out of their present situation and allows them to be in another space and time. In the audience for the film or actually during the production itself? The audience. That, that is the key to everything, of course. I mean, you can create all day unless somebody watches it. And for me, even if one person is changed and, and their point of view has changed, that's worth it. You mentioned in an artist statement, you said, I make films to provide a perspective of which the audience was unaware. When the screen goes dark, the viewer has changed in some elemental way. They gain a new way of seeing the world and our walk through life with a different awareness. Yes, and, and that's whether it's a documentary or a narrative. And it can be, for me, in a narrative, it should be something that comes from their basement 
of their being that's something they experience that is familiar, but yet you can't remember where it came from. It's, it's almost like a memory, mm-hmm. you know? And with a documentary, it's, it's pointing out sometimes really basic things that when we go throughout life, we don't notice things, whether they be objects or whether they be trees or birds. And whatever we focus on is almost like the depth of field of a lens. So if I can bring things to light, ideas or any type of thing that somebody hasn't considered or taken a moment to look at before, then that's my job. There's so many things that you have to be aware of directing. A documentary is a little bit more cut and dried, although it's never the same on paper as it is when it's finished because again things snowball and pick up other things along with them as they move along and suddenly this clean clear-cut outline that you had before has become something different than it was in the beginning plethora for example was the first documentary that i did and it's all about stuff and how we all have so many things that we can't park the car in the garage or we're paying this monthly fee for a storage unit or whatever you know we have the two different wardrobes you know the skinny wardrobe and the fat wardrobe you know (laughs) or we have the hiking boots that someday we'll hike again yes yes so that was a uh, one of my, I, th- I think probably my favorite documentary so far because I usually create things that answer something in my life. At that time, I was living in a four-bedroom house with four closets all filled with my things. You know, so it was kind of like, hmm, let's examine what's going on here. So you did a documentary, you got a grant, Creative Pinellas had a grant that they did with the Pinellas Community Foundation called Act Two, Mm -hmm. and it was for artists over 60, and it was for artists creating work about aging in place. Mm -hmm. And you created a documentary called The Magic Hour. It has been very, very well received. People are delighted by it. It delighted me because I just turned 64 and the women in the film were between, I think it was 62 and 82. And they gave me so much happiness about aging that I look at these guys and I'm like, oh man, I'm going to run out of money. I thought I was going to be gone by then. And these guys are going strong. We had a choreographer, a speaker, an activist who I'm actually working with on something else at this point. We had just this cross section of trying to make it all creative people and what they're doing. And and they're by no means stagnant and they're doing more than most people I know that are half their age. So It was very uplifting for me to be around these women and to tell their story. And they would crack me up. I'd have to stop and occasionally stop from crying as well, you know, because some of their stories are very touching. But they're all people that I hope to remain in my life as well. They're people that I want to be around. They're not just subjects of the film. So what happens to a documentary like The Magic Hour or Plethora when you've completed it? I mean, obviously you can put it on the website or mm-hmm. whatever, but... No, I, I don't do that for usually two years with my films. I try to run them through the festival circuit. Uh-huh. 
which is what's happening with that film right now. It's tricky. There's so it's kind of like the '60s was when everybody was a guitarist, you know, and everybody was in a band. Now everybody's a film director. So it's it's been democratized, yeah, yeah. and anybody these days can make a technically good film pretty much if if they don't even try. You can do it with your cell phone these days. So, you know, when we used to have to, for photography, go in and get in a dark room and do things, now it's it's all happening in the hands of a six-year-old, maybe, you know. So it's a, a totally different thing. I think that is also happening to the distribution end, and there will be many people that will argue with me and probably be angry at me for saying this, but I attend a lot of uh, international festivals, and nobody knows what's going on right now in terms of distribution. You have the Netflixes and Amazon and now Apple all jumping into the distribution picture. And you have the big studios that are trying to emulate those guys while they're trying to emulate the big studios. And it's very confusing what's going on. We have content farms in China. It's the way things are, it it hasn't settled yet, the, the way things are working out. And I truly believe that episodics online are going to be the way things are going to be done in the future. I think they're already being done that way, but I think that's going to be the model for distribution more so than festivals. We've got screens everywhere around us. If we don't have that screen around us, we're, we're pretty lonely. You know, I'm about to go on a little trip in the mountains, and part of that is a cleansing for me to not have that in my hand or by my side so that I'm almost forced to create and, mm-hmm. and clean out some of this stuff mm-hmm. that's constantly banging me as I walk down the street or drive or in my house or wherever. You know, 20 or 30 years ago, a film was made out of silver, right? Silver nitrate. I mean, mm-hmm. it's expensive. Mm-hmm. And developing is expensive. And the camera's expensive. And renting an editor is expensive. Mm-hmm. And so if you didn't have access to money, right. you could be the most creative, talented, have the most important story to tell you know, in the world, right. and there was no doors open. So I like the fact that anybody can create and that the technology makes those tools really inexpensive and very easily available and easily learnable, at least at the basic technological level. I agree. We're, we're able to see stories we never would have seen before. I yeah. think it's a wonderful thing, but it also makes it a little bit like crossing a muddy river when you're trying to yeah. get to something you like. And how do you reach your audience? How do you rise above mm-hmm. the clutter? If, if everybody's a creator, how do you know which is the creator that you know is going to tell you the story that really is going to change something about who you are or how you think or how you, you know, feel? I think you build a style, and people can see in your stories some kind of thread that goes through those stories even if they're about totally different subjects even if they're a documentary versus a narrative and part of your soul goes into that let me ask what you're working on now well (laughs) i always seem to have something on the way back burner something on the back burner and something that I'm currently working on, and sometimes those jockey a bit. Two years ago, we started working, my writing partner and I, on on an episodic, which would like to be on TV, but it could be on the web, called The Berg. Uh And I'm very excited about that. I haven't written for television or in that format before, so it's a little bit of a learning experience. It's not the same. Everything's formulaic 
at least in this country. It's fun. We're not sure at this point whether we're going to go uh, half an hour or hour What's for each it episode. It's quite complex, actually. But uh, it's about an older woman who lives in St. Petersburg in a condo. She's retired. It opens up with she and an older gay man knitting pussy hats. So she's political. Her daughter lives in New York, and her granddaughter lives with her, who's now 15. What else is in them? We're doing uh, the third in the series of Tiny Bacteria. There's six altogether. The the second one was called Half an Hour, which is about a woman whose looks had faded and her life had pretty much faded. She was probably some, maybe a rocket or something you don't know, but she was a beautiful, well-built woman in her 20s, and now she's probably um, maybe her 50s and uh, living on her her money comes from dates. Let's mm. just put it that way. Mm. So she's preparing for one of those dates. Oh. And uh, the imagery, there's only two lines in the whole thing. Oh. So uh, it's very visual. Tiny Bacteria is? Tiny Bacteria is an amazing uh, little non-factual narrative about Martha Gellhorn, which was, uh, the part was played by Eugenie Bondurant, who was totally amazing. And this is my experience being a director. It took me a while to learn to respect the actor's skill and to understand that you give them everything you want and then they give you back what you want from their point and of Martha view. And Martha Gellhorn is Hemingway's <clears throat> wife? I think it was his third wife, and she was also the first female war correspondent. Tough, tough lady, smart, really amazing, but fragile like the rest of us. And the name Tiny Bacteria? Comes from the, she talks about him infesting her like tiny bacteria. Wow. Yeah. So tiny bacteria, the first in the six, we call them microsodes, mm-hmm. <laughs> really took wings and was accepted at Cannes Film Festival in 2017. So Eugenie, the actress, and Marina Shemwell, my writing partner, and I all went to Cannes. Wow. And it was quite the experience. That must have been really fun. It, Talk about a bucket list item, huh? <laughs> it's, it's, you know, where do you go from there? Yeah. It's, it's tough. Very prolific. Very prolific. Not as much as I want to be. Oh, well. (laughs) But that's why I ended up selling my business, which was very successful. I sold it to an employee and downsized my house, just changed my whole life so I can do this all the time. And very happy. Never look back. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And I've been talking to Victoria Jorgensen, an award-winning Tampa Bay filmmaker. Thank you. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley, and if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.